are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. Glad you could join me for this Thursday afternoon session of a live question and answer. I can hardly believe it. These are two weeks in a row where I've been able to do the question and answer live today. And of course, I'm very pleased to be able to do that whenever I can. And I think, God willing, and if I live, I take a look at my schedule, my calendar, and I'm going to be able to join you again next Thursday, 12 noon Pacific time, for this live question and answer time. The live thing is kind of fun because how it works is you simply write in the chat window your question or your comment, and I respond to it the best I can. We're at a level now where I can usually respond to every question or comment that comes in uh, for the most part, and uh, it's enjoyable for me to do this on a Thursday afternoon. Now, I always pick a lead question to begin with, something that's come to me personally, something that somebody's asked me about, something that comes in on social media or as a response to uh, a comment on the YouTube channel, whatever it is. And so my lead question for today is simply this, should Christians keep kosher? Should Christians keep kosher? And it's an interesting question because, uh, you know, kosher refers to, for the most part, it, it actually is a broader concept of this. What people say keeping kosher, they're usually referring to the Jewish dietary laws that are revealed in the scriptures, and there's a lot of rabbinic interpretation about those uh, things that are revealed to us in the scripture. I I'm not going to talk so much about the rabbinic interpretations, but just to get to the rules that are given in the scriptures, it's mostly contained for us, for example, in Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11 is a longer chapter that speaks about the clean and unclean animals that were permitted for Israel for them to eat. And so it just says, you can eat this kind of animal, you can't eat this kind of animal. This specific one, this animal on a principle, uh, it, it begins this way, Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. So it says, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the children of Israel, saying, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Okay, that's the first two verses of Leviticus chapter 11. Then following is a long explanation of which animals are permitted and which animals are not permitted. Now, uh, this is kind of interesting as it falls down in the book of Leviticus, because over the, it begins a, a series of five chapters that deal with the matters of ceremonial impurity of all different kinds. Uh, and so they had to deal with these things. In the first 10 chapters of the book of Leviticus are laws dealing with the priests and the sacrifices. But now, transitioning into chapter 11, they're dealing with the very ordinary and everyday life of the people. This is what they're supposed to do. And since uh, what we eat is something that God is interested in and we're interested in, here God speaks to this for Israel. And he just simply says here, these are the animals which you may eat. Some animals they were permitted to eat, the meat from those animals, of course, and some animals they were not permitted to eat. But I want you to notice, God says this, and he says it right there in the first two verses of Leviticus chapter 11, that these laws were given to 
the children of Israel, not to humanity in general. It, it says that these were the spoken to the children of Israel. So, so even though there was an early basis for considering some animals clean and unclean, that goes all the way back to Noah in Genesis chapter 7 and in Genesis chapter 8. But these particular laws were given to the children of Israel. Now, why did God give these dietary laws to Israel? Well, actually, when you get into it, there's a lot of debate about it because the scriptures do not very clearly give a purpose. We can discern some purposes, but since the scriptures do not clearly give a purpose saying, this is why I'm giving you these laws, th th there's some understanding that can be made. First of all, we can say this, that the dietary laws gave the Israelites an opportunity to demonstrate their obedience to God. You see, overall, God's intent was to make Israel a holy nation, something separate from the other nations, and they, they would be obedient to God, not primarily to their bellies. Now, I want you to consider this, that the very first law that God gave to humanity was about something that could be eaten and couldn't be eaten. Isn't that kind of fascinating? Think about that. In the Garden of Eden, that's what it was all about. God said, you can eat all these other fruits from the trees. You can't eat the fruit from this one particular tree. So from the very beginning, God gave laws to humanity about what they could eat and they couldn't eat. This was reflected within the laws of Israel. So that's number one. It was just simply a test of obedience. Number two, the dietary laws separated the Israelites from their Gentile and pagan neighbors. You see, the restrictions on what they could eat and couldn't eat limited the true fellowship and connection that an obedient Israelite could have with the surrounding peoples who didn't worship or obey Yahweh. So uh, the, these animals that were declared unclean, if, if, if a pagan neighbor to Israel was going to have a pork chop dinner, the Israelite couldn't sit down at the same table and share the food. It was just not going to happen, because if that Israelite was going to be obedient to the law of Israel, they could not do it. It's also true that some of the animals that were declared unclean for eating were animals that were idolized in pagan religions, but that wasn't always the case. But anyway, the second reason was that the laws separated the Israels from their Gentile pagan neighbors. And then the third reason we could give is we can say that the dietary laws that God gave to Israel helped to protect the health of the Jewish people. Uh, many diseases and problems were prevented by obedience to these dietary laws. So for those three reasons, as a test of obedience, to separate them from other peoples, and to uh, protect their health. Now, some Christians believe that we are under obligation to observe these dietary laws of clean and unclean animals today. Now, I would say that this is not true for a few reasons. First of all, remember what it says in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 2, that these laws were specifically given to the children of Israel. God did not give these kosher laws, even in the Old Testament, to humanity in general. He gave them to the children of Israel. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, this issue was settled once and for all at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. There it was determined that obedience to the laws of Moses was not required of the followers of Jesus Christ. That's it was settled. You can look it up in Acts chapter 15. 
Now, we're not saying that a Christian is obliged to break the laws of Moses, nor are we saying that every law of Moses is something that Christians don't have to observe. For example, the law of Moses said, do not murder. Well, Christians are still commanded not to murder, of course. We find that command also in the New Testament. But especially when it comes to the ceremonial laws, and certainly the kosher laws were ceremonial laws, they are not required of the followers of Jesus. So, as the Apostle Paul wrote, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, he said this, Let no one judge you in food or in drink. Now, let no one judge you. I think that this is an important verse to consider. Let no one judge you if you as a believer choose not to keep kosher. However, let no one judge you also means let no one judge you if you as a believer choose to keep kosher. Here's what we have to understand. Whether you as a Christian believer decide to keep kosher or decide not to keep kosher, None of that earns your righteousness before Jesus Christ. Your righteousness is not found in what you eat or drink. Your righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. If you choose to keep kosher as a believer, you have perfect freedom in Jesus Christ to do so. And I would say, God bless you if that's what you want to do. But don't think that it makes you any more right with God that you keep kosher. But if you sense that the Holy Spirit leads you, as an individual believer to do it, God bless you. Go for it. Nothing wrong with that. Now, as an addition to this, Paul also explained that for Christians, there is danger in legalistically declaring some foods to be forbidden for others. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me read this to you, starting at verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, verse 3, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Again, that's another very clear statement of the principle that the kosher dietary laws given to the children of Israel in the Old Testament do not apply to believers under the New Covenant. If you want to keep those laws, go right ahead. You're free to do so. But they are not a measure of your obedience to God in Jesus Christ. Now, we do have to admit there are some Christians sometimes myself included, we have bad eating habits. And some people live under bondage when it comes to food. They are addicted to eating certain foods that are not helpful for them. If you are under bondage to food, you need to embrace God's principle of fasting in your life. This is what God says believers should do. This is, should be a part of just normal Christian practice, the practice of fasting. God does not want us to live under bondage to food, but the solution to that is not by eating kosher. The solution to that is by fasting as God may command us. Now, the whole issue of fasting is something that we might deal with in greater depth on another time. But again, 
Paul spoke to this principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be under the power of any. So we should not be slaves to the food we eat, but we should have freedom in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know if you're a slave, tell me how it works out with you with fasting. That's a way to demonstrate that we are not slaves to our appetites. Uh, but apart from those considerations, Christians are free to eat or to not eat whatever they please. And no one should think themselves more right with God because they do eat or don't eat certain things. As it says in Romans 14, verse 14, Paul says this, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So we are free to fulfill the principle that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where he says, whatever therefore you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You can eat kosher to the glory of God, if you please, just don't think it makes you any more right with God, or you can choose not to eat kosher. We have the liberty in Jesus Christ because our righteousness is not based on our own personal obedience. Our righteousness is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did for us, especially what he did for us at the cross and in the resurrection. So I think that deals well enough with the just general principle, should Christians keep kosher? Uh, I'm going to get to the questions here in the sidebar, uh, but I do want to uh, bring up a couple things and answer another question before I get to that. A couple things to bring up are simply this. First of all, I, I want to remind you that we're going to do an enduring word trip to Israel this year in September. Now, actually, I'm going to be a part of two Israel tours this year, one of them with my church family at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara in November which is going to be an amazing trip. But then another trip that I'm going to be doing more on my own in September. If you'd like to be a part of our Enduring Word Israel trip of September of 2020, just go to our website and you can find the link. The other thing I want to point out, and I'm even more excited about this, our Enduring Word app, which is available on both the uh, iOS for, you could see what this with the front page of the app looks like right there. Uh, it's available for iPhone, iOS. It's also available for Android. Uh, it's free. Uh, tens of thousands of downloads we've had. We're very blessed by that. Here's the big news. My Spanish commentary is now available on the app. And to get to the Spanish commentary, just click on settings and it'll give you a language setting and uh, choose Spanish for the language, and you will be able to access the Spanish content on the website, the Spanish commentary on the Enduring Word app. So I just want to say to everybody who knows people who might benefit from using my Bible commentary in Spanish, it's now available on the Enduring Word app, and the next big addition that we're working on, I can't give you a time frame for this, is to add audio. Uh, access to my audio library and audio teaching from the Enduring Word app. 
So exciting things. Uh, again, if you want information, you can go to the website, EnduringWord.com uh, for either the Israel trip or the app. But you can just look it up on the App Store, look at Google Play or on the uh, App Store for Apple uh, and just search for Enduring Word. All right, uh, another question before I get to the sidebar. Uh, Ingrid asks, what is the difference between the seven branch menorah and the nine branch menorah? Now, do you know what a menorah is? I, I wish I would have brought in a model with me right now. The menorah is that distinctive lampstand that is uh, indicative of Judaism. And you may have noticed through the years that some of the menorahs are seven branches and some of them are nine branches. Well, what's the difference between the two? Well, it, it's really pretty simple. The seven branch menorah is a representation of the seven branched lamp or lamp stand, which was in the tabernacle and in the temple. Uh, Exodus chapter 25 describes how this lampstand or menorah was to be one single lampstand in the middle and then with three branches on each side, the one and the three on each side, that's a total of seven lampstands. And, and we know this not only from the biblical description in Exodus 25, but we also have archaeological evidence of this in a few places. Uh, in the Arch of Titus in Rome, and you can go to Rome today and see this, this Arch of Titus, it is the memorial or the record of how the Roman armies looted the temple in Jerusalem and returned treasures from the temple to Rome. You see a depiction of the seven-branch menorah there uh, on the Arch of Titus in Rome, and it's a very common, a very old symbol of Judaism. It's seen in artworks and carvings and synagogue decorations all over the world. The seven-branch menorah is connected with the lampstand that stood in the tabernacle or in the temple. Now, the nine-branch menorah, that is designed specifically to be used at Hanukkah, to light the eight candles for the eight days of Hanukkah. So the nine-branch menorah is connected to Hanukkah. Now you say, well, there's eight nights or eight days of Hanukkah. Why is it a nine-branch menorah? Because they add one more branch to it for the candle that will light all the other lights. So it's a total of nine, the eight days of Hanukkah plus one for the uh, candle that's the helper to light the other ones, and that makes for the nine branches. Nine-branch menorah connected to Hanukkah, seven-branch menorah that's connected with the ancient temple and tabernacle. That's the more traditional symbol of Judaism in general. All right. Thank you, Ingrid, for that question. All right. Let me get to the questions in the chat bar now. Here we have uh, something from Adolfi. Do you have any speaking uh, engagements in Mexico in 2020? I do not, as of yet, have any speaking engagements in Mexico. Maybe that'll work out through the year here. Um, Lee asks, uh, am I speaking in Florida? Uh, yes, I am, Lee. Uh, the weekend of March, I think it's 15th and 16th. I could look at my calendar, but the, 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 um, the weekend of March 15th or so, uh, I'm going to be preaching at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and I'm looking forward to that very much. Um, Lee also asks, what about those born during the millennium? Well, Lee, that's an interesting question. Of course, it only applies 
to a specific um, understanding of the millennium that people would describe as being pre-millennial, because th there are some Christians who teach we're in the millennium right now. I, I don't agree with that teaching, but it's out there. Uh, but but I would just simply say, uh, people who were born during the millennium will live under the perfect reign of Jesus Christ. He will rule and reign over the earth. In addition to that, they will um, be human beings just like um, we are today, pre-glorification, and they will have the opportunity to accept or reject Jesus all on their own. Uh, they, they will live under the perfect administration of Jesus and those who rule and reign on behalf of Jesus, but they will be just as we are now pre-resurrection, pre-glorification. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Philip says, uh, hello from Norfolk, uh, UK. Since reading the Bible more and more, I have found so many of my previous enthusiasms and interests have fallen away. This is both exciting and completely disorienting. I'm 67 years old, and that's a whole lot of embedded stuff just crumbling away. Philip, I understand what you mean, and you know why? Because when you are into the Word of God, you are in touch with that which is eternal. We meet the eternal God through His eternal, enduring Word. You know, the whole name of my ministry, my website is EnduringWord.com. Enduring Word is the name of the ministry, and I'm not good at naming things, but one of the reasons why I chose that name many years ago was because I, I really believe what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands or endures forever. It's eternal. This is how God reveals himself in and through his word. Now, God is not his word, but God so closely associates himself with his word that it is a way that we get to know God and associate with him. So, Philip, you, as you become more familiar and draw closer and closer to God in and through his word, you're understanding the joy of that, and I'm so pleased to hear it, and I'm so pleased to know that people are tuning in from uh, Europe, from the UK. Uh, it's wonderful. So thank you for that. Uh, Susan says, Hi, Pastor David. When we read the Lord in the Old Testament, is it referring to the person of Jesus in the Trinity? Okay, uh, Susan, you ask a great question. When we read in the Old Testament the word Lord, now, in most Bible translations, it will be Lord in capital letters, or in small capital letters, because that is the representation in the English translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Uh, some people have pronounced it Jehovah in older things, but really it's, it's probably more accurately translated Yahweh. And Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel. And the best way that I understand it, not everybody understands it this way, but Susan, the best way I understand it is to say this, that Yahweh is the triune God, because I can show you by taking a look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament together, God the Father claims to be Yahweh, God the Son claims to be Yahweh, and God the Holy Spirit claims to be Yahweh. All three of those persons lay a claim to being, in one way or another, 
Yahweh as it's represented in the Old Testament. So I take a look at Yahweh being the triune God. Now, there are places in the Old Testament, I was just looking at one of them today, Psalm 2, where Yahweh is spoken of, but it, it's you can really see that it's emphasizing the person of God the Father. So sometimes we have places like that. But in its entirety, Yahweh is the triune God. So sometimes there's a focus on a particular person of the Trinity when Yahweh is mentioned, but many times, maybe even most of the times, it's a general reference to the triune God. Great question on that, Susan. Um, Agnes says, Hi, Pastor David. How do you know if the guilt you feel is from you or the Holy Spirit? Well, Agnes, that is a great question. How do you know that the guilt you feel, whether it's from yourself or maybe even condemnation from the devil, or whether it is the legitimate conviction of the Holy Spirit. How do you know? You know, sometimes all we know is that we feel terrible about ourselves or about sin. How do we know if that is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit or the condemning work of the world, the flesh, or the devil? Agnes, I'm going to give you something of a little bit of a cliche, but sometimes cliches are pretty good, and I think this one is pretty good. Here's the difference. When it's from the Holy Spirit, it will drive you to the Lord. When it's from the world, the flesh, or the devil, it'll drive you away from the Lord. It, if it's from the Holy Spirit, it'll make you run to Jesus for the forgiveness and cleansing of your sins. If it's coming from Satan, because he is the accuser and the condemner of God's people. If it comes from the world, if it comes from our own flesh, it'll tell you, you filthy worm, you're not worthy to come to God. So if it's pushing us away from God, it's not of the Lord. But if this feeling of sin and conviction and guilt within us is pushing us to God for forgiveness and cleansing and healing, then that's from the Holy Spirit. Hope that helps you, Agnes. Susan says, Pastor Guzik, do you think King uh, do you think King David was a good father to King Solomon? And if he wasn't, could it have made a difference at the end of Solomon's life regarding his worshiping idols? Whoa, Susan, that is a great question. And I have to say, from my reading of First and Second Samuel, and then you can also put in First Kings in there, David was not a great father to any of his children. Now, you could say he was a better father to Solomon than he was to some of his other children. But we see the family life of King David in the Old Testament was a mess, a mess. Anytime we see a profile of a polygamous family in the Old Testament, it's a mess. It's God's way of telling us that he never intended polygamy, though he allowed it. We can't deny that God allowed polygamy in the Old Testament. But we never see God's blessing upon a polygamous family. They're always a mess. From the beginning, God ordained, Jesus said, that one man be with one woman. That was God's pattern from the beginning. Now, um, David was not a great father. And oftentimes what we see 
is that the things that are smaller sins in the Father become bigger sins in the Son. So look at David. David has a hard time restraining his lust. He marries several women. I think David married up to eight women. I'm not sure on that number, but for some reason, the number eight sticks in my mind. And of course, he committed his infamous sexual immorality with Bathsheba. David was a man who had trouble controlling his sexual desires. That was a smaller sin in David. It was significant. I'm not trying to say that it was insignificant in David's life, but it was smaller comparatively to Solomon, who had a thousand wives and concubines combined. You see, oftentimes it's the case, what is a smaller sin in the father becomes a bigger sin in the sons. So um, these things affected Solomon. And because it was Solomon's pagan wives that led his heart away from the Lord, according to 1 Kings, this is a very significant thing. And, and there's something to what you say there, Susan, about David not being a great father. Now, again, I, I don't want to oversell the case. In some ways, David was a good father to his children, but certainly not in every way. And his polygamy contributed to a very poor family life. Okay, Adolfa, yes. Praise the Lord for the Spanish commentary. Susan says, yes, sharing the Spanish app with your family. Yes, please do. Now, again, remember, it's the regular Enduring Word app. You just go to the Spanish content by clicking on the settings or the preferences, and there it'll give you a language option. Um, Carol says, who do you read when you study other than the Bible? Well, Kara, if you take a look at my Bible commentary, again, on enduringword.com or on the app that you can download, you see that I quote a lot of Bible commentators. And I can't really move my camera where it is right now, but I am in a little office here that has a wall full of books there and full of books behind. And I read a lot of different commentators. Here's a commentary right here by uh, G. Campbell Morgan, Acts of the Apostles. It's good commentary. G. Campbell Morgan, a great commentator. I can just pull a few books off the shelf. Uh, here's a, a commentary on the book of Acts by John Stott. Excellent commentary by John Stott here on uh, the book of Acts. Uh, let me just see if I could draw off another commentary just to show you. Uh, not long ago, I went through the Gospel of Luke and somebody recommended to me, they even bought me this commentary. Thank you, Pastor Joe Foch, for buying me this commentary by Marvin Pate on the Gospel of Luke. This was a solid commentary. Anyway, if you look at my website, you can see a whole variety of commentators that I quote, that I use. Uh, so just look at the bibliography. If you go to EnduringWord.com, click on the About word on the menu, you'll see bibliography, and there you'll see it's not yet completely finished, but a bibliography for most of the books of the Bible that I go through. Hope that helps you there, Carol. Uh, Daniel says, uh, hello, Pastor Guzik. God bless you for your wonderful work on Bible commentary. Uh, it has a help to know uh, the Bible commentary. Uh, I hope you're going to do it in French. Daniel, we're working on some translation projects in French. And we would like to do more and more in the French language. 
I just need to coordinate and connect with the right French translators uh, for my work. Uh, Gunnel says, thanks, Pastor David, for the explanation about the menorah. You're very welcome, Gunnel. Uh, very welcome. Happy to do it. Uh, Daniel says, I have a question. What is your point of view of wearing jewelry or makeup as a believer? Okay, Daniel, that's a great question. Because some Christians have said that um, it should be prohibited for believers to, and usually we're talking about women, of course, to wear jewelry, although men wear jewelry, I'm wearing a wedding ring right now, uh, to wear jewelry or for makeup. And usually they base this on the commands in the New Testament. You can search from yourself, but the New Testament commands believers, and specifically women, to be modest in their apparel. And here's simply what I would say to that, Daniel. Standards for modesty are not the same from culture to culture. So whatever is considered modest in a particular culture, Christian women should be respectful of that. If a culture in general has decided that any kind of jewelry is immodest, then a Christian woman should not stand out as being immodest because she wears jewelry or makeup or whatever it is. But if in a culture as in general, uh, the moderate wearing of jewelry or makeup is considered modest, it's okay, then we would just say it's okay. So th that's what I would say, is that just to understand that whatever is understood in a community or in a culture as modest, Christian women and men, for that regard, should respect that and dress because this is what the Bible commands. But what is considered modest in one culture may be considered immodest in another, and we just kind of want to be sensitive to that. But good question, Daniel. Thank you for that. Uh, Levy says, David, how do you trust God with a difficult situation? You know, the best answer I, that comes to my mind immediately for that, Levy, is to just simply say, repeatedly. When we are in tough situations, situations where it's tough for us to really trust God, we have a tendency to give it to God and then take it back again. Give it to God and take it back again. Here's what we need to do is keep giving it to God again and again and again. And if I could recommend one other thing, it's often helpful to memorize Scripture in that pursuit uh, and just repeat those promises to believers again and again. How about this one? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Oh, what a great promise. Lord, keep me in your perfect peace. I want to keep my mind on you. I want to think about you more than my problems. I want to put my focus on you and not on my problems. So, uh, yes, I, I think we need to do it repeatedly, and we need to do it with the help of the Scriptures. Joanne says, um, uh, skip my question, connected to Philip's, really wondering how to show this. Okay, Joanne, let me go back through and see if I can see your question here. Um, Joanne, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing your particular question there before, but it's related to Philip's how to share this. Philip's question again, um, with the things that are embedded in us, so to speak, from the past, how do we deal with those things? Again, 
All I can say is um, oftentimes it's a matter of simply putting your pursuit on the Lord and letting those other things just fall away as they will. Look, there's sometimes when God in his work in our life kind of commands us to renounce specific things. There's other times when God says, you fix your eyes on me, the author and finisher of our faith, as Hebrew says, you pursue me with all your might and just let those other things uh, fade away. That's probably the best um, explanation I could give of that. Um, let's see, uh, Donald, uh, thanks for your teaching. You're very welcome, Donald. Mark, thanks for your time today. Would you say that your explanation for keeping kosher for Christians is similar to what you would say for lay Christians who want to drink socially? Uh, Mark, I would say it's similar. Now, I, I do believe, and I'm glad you specify for lay Christians, because I think Christian leaders have a different responsibility. Um, it's very important that if a Christian is to drink, first of all, that they never get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. But for lay people who feel that they have the liberty in Christ to drink, first of all, to never get drunk. Secondly, to never stumble another believer who may uh, be challenged on an issue of drunkenness for themselves because they uh, see or know another Christian to be a drinker. And then third, to make sure that you're not under the power of that. Um, if you are a believer and you believe you have the uh, liberty to drink, alcohol is what we're talking about, you have a particular responsibility to display that you are moderate in your alcohol intake. Um, but yes, I, I think I would give many of the same principles for that, Mark. All right, I'll just get to a few more questions here from Aaron. Hi, from London, UK. Blessings to you, Aaron. Uh, what does the Bible say about long-term romantic relationships outside of marriage? Is this sin? Well, it's a little bit difficult, Aaron, to answer your question, because romantic can have a very wide uh, span of meaning. Some people use romantic, that term, in a very general sense, meaning it just affects the uh, affections of the heart. Other people use that word romantic to mean um, rom physically romantic. And, and so to really answer that question, you, you would have to know, okay, what exactly do you mean by romantic? If it's in a very vague, general sense, then it would be more accepting. But in general, I think that God intends romance, especially any kind of physical romance, to, to in general be on the path to a marriage relationship. Now, this general principle has been greatly misused by people, especially people kind of want the certainty of uh, marriage right away. But I don't think it can be denied that God's general principle is that romance belongs in marriage, not that it's prohibited outside of marriage, but it should be on the track to marriage. And, of course, if a person is married, they have a target, so to speak, for their romantic impulse. That's to be their spouse and nobody else. So um, 
I think I understand what you're getting at, but to answer the question as you state it would take more understanding of what that means, but the general principle that God intends romance to lead unto marriage. And um, I, 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 th there's something to be said for the principle that a relationship shouldn't go on romantically forever without deciding, are we going to get married or not? That it neither needs to decide the point, will there be marriage or not? Uh, some people talk about a two-year rule. Of course, that's nothing to be dogmatic about, but maybe as a general principle, just the idea that there needs to be a point of decision. Are we going to continue or are we going to get married? Next, um, Carol says, I know you quote Spurgeon office. Yes, I do often. Um, oh, Joanne uh, specifies the question a little bit better, and I'll get to these last couple of questions here. Um, my friends and family see these changes in me as being unhappy or depressed. I don't know how to get past this. I'm chronically ill and in pain, yet I never had such peace as I am now. Well, Joanne, let me explain to you this. I'm glad to hear about the peace that you have in Jesus Christ, and that is evidence of God's work in you. It is part of being a follower of Jesus Christ that people will sometimes misunderstand us. Jesus was misunderstood. His family misunderstood him. His disciples misunderstood him. Even on the cross, he was not understood. So there will be people who simply don't understand what God is doing in our life. We can tell them, and we should tell them. You, you should tell your family, your friends, as you can, I am in great peace. I understand how you might think I'm dour or down. I'm just going through a lot, but I have tremendous peace from God. You can tell them that. But just there's times and places in our Christian life where we just have to accept that we will be misunderstood. Maybe that's some of what you're dealing with right now. Kenzie says, uh, finally caught this live. Enduring Word has helped my faith journey a lot. I use the app almost every day. Thank you for all that you I'm so happy. To, and Kenzie, let me say, just a little more than a month ago, we finally got our diagnostics or analytics, I should say, uh, dialed in for the app. And I'm a little bit surprised how much the app is used. Uh, thousands of uh, page views a day on the app. And we're very pleased with that. We're happy for you to recommend it to other people. And then uh, the final comment, here is a uh, pastor david thank you for doing these live sessions i appreciate these times and your encouragement and currently going through james through enduring word and i love it well raven i'm happy to hear that you love it uh, thank you for mentioning specifically that you're going through james because james is something that we uh, did here right here in this little studio that i have and i'm going to be adding more teaching to enduring word in the youtube channel through the bible verse by verse i'm working on psalms right now uh, and it'll be available there. Thank you for that encouragement. And God bless you, uh, Simeon and Alex. Love you guys. All right, um, that's going to be it for today. I do want to say thank you. Thank you, as always, to the people who pray for and support the work of Enduring Word. Something exciting happened to us just this week. Just in this last week, since our last um, question and answer time, we received uh, the first translated commentary portion uh, in Farsi. And I'm excited about this 
because I want to get more and more, especially of my New Testament commentary, translated into the Farsi language to minister to Iranian and Persian believers. Um, I think they can use these Bible resources. Pray for the translation work. Pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. Thank you to those who pray. Thank you to those who support the work financially. And if you want to see my Bible commentary, go to EnduringWord.com or download the app. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, God willing, and if we live, I'll be back next week for the question and answer uh, broadcast. Thank you and God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.